Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, after two people were killed and five injured at a fire at an oil refinery, we discussed the unusually frequent blazes ripping through shopping malls, factories and other facilities in Russia. Plus, in the second half of today's episode, Francis Dernley interviews Dr Thomas Clausen, a historian who works for a liberal think tank in Berlin, on recent developments with Chancellor Olaf Scholz and Germany's relationship with Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 15th of December, day 295. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley. Dom, I'll come to you first. What are the latest military updates from the last 24 hours? Well, hello, Claire, and hello, everybody. It's been um, 24 hours of bit of carrying on the wave of artillery that we've seen, artillery strikes. So Ukraine say that uh, Russian shelling in Hezon City down to the south yesterday killed two people. It's been it's been regularly shelled since Russia pulled out and went across the river, the Dnipro River, last last month. There have been efforts to get the civilians out of uh, out of Hezon, but there's tens of thousands left in there, many of whom don't don't want to leave, especially now the Russians have gone. So they are under this bombardment, almost daily daily bombardment. Um, elsewhere, so. Russia says that the city of Donetsk, the actual city of, rather than the oblast or on the, the, the wider region, the city of Donetsk has been hit with what they're calling the biggest wave of strikes since since 2014. This is according to separatist officials. So Russia-friendly separatist officials are saying one person's killed, nine injured. No way of independently verifying that. I just, I mean, you know, it strikes me as slightly odd. People, people say that all I am and all this pod is a mouthpiece for Ukraine. I mean, that's simply not true. I try. You know, we are we are completely objective, but we just push against this egregious assault on humanity. I just don't. It doesn't fit the pattern of what Ukraine have done recently, just to shell a city. I mean, it serves no military purpose to do that at the moment. I mean, they're not. They haven't got any ground forces nearby. So, I'm not disputing because uh, I have no no proof one way or the other that that 
one person was killed and nine, and nine injured. But I mean, the, the fa- inside Donetsk City, I just find that slightly hard to believe. But well, we, we wait for confirmation. But and up until then, then you got to, as I always say, you got to treat, treat all these claims of casualties on both sides with a, a degree of scepticism. Take your information from as many sources as you can, and we'll try and achieve a squad average at the end of the day. Elsewhere in Russia itself, a continuing a pattern would suggest that there is more to it but there's a, a an oil refinery has gone up gone up in smoke two died five injured in an oil refinery in eastern siberia now recently we've seen shopping malls go up in in russia go up in smoke we've seen industrial plants some linked to the defense industry but not all uh, we know a lot of russian infrastructure is not is not great hasn't been upgraded we know their sort of health and safety practices aren't quite what you'd get in in sort of tunbridge wells so yes not not surprising that some of these things go um, go up in go up in flames but there has been a suggestion that there's some very low level opposition inside russia to the war and that that some people are taking these kind of actions so i'm not suggesting this oil refinery in, in siberia was the act of these this type of partisan activity but you know it's, it's happening quite quite regularly one other piece to to mention just for now just worth mentioning def- uh, today's defense intelligence so britain's MOD, Ministry of Defence Intelligence branch, they put out a daily tweet. Some are much better than others. I mean, they've got a, they've got a tricky task, haven't they? Trying to put sensitive information into the public domain so it gets watered down and, and lots of um, caveats of thought-to-be's and likely and it suggests that. But, I mean, it's a good, a good snapshot of what, um, of what DI is, is, is looking at and thinking at the time. And they mentioned today that Belarus conducted snap combat readiness inspection of military forces on December the 13th. Now, these exercises are taking place in the northwest of the country. There's no suggestion that they're anywhere near, for now, anywhere near the Ukrainian border. But we do know that Russia has deployed extra units, mainly reservists, into Belarus. We also know that Belarus or Russia has used Belarus to launch air assaults, so, so launched missiles from there and launched um, aircraft, which then go and fire missiles. We know Russia is training troops, or using Belarus for training. And, of course, just ha- having... You, I mean, they did go across that border at, at the start of this recent phase of the, of the war February, since February the 24th. Didn't go well for them. They they had to go go backwards after a few weeks. But you know, it's still the threat is still there. So Ukraine has to hold forces uh, at readiness just in case. Belarus is in an interesting position. We've mentioned this before that Lukashenko, the president, was a, Europe's last dictator. He's sometimes called. I think Putin's giving him a run for his money there. But. Um, He's in a he's in a tricky position. He he has to he relies on Russia basically for his, for his power, his personal power, and for the for the regime. But at the same time, I mean, all the signals are that he's very 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 lukewarm about this this war on on Ukraine. So he makes all the right noises. He says, "Oh yeah, come and train your troops here, uh, Vladimir, and and come and um, you know use use our airfields and so on and so forth." But he's he's never actually put his forces on a war footing or done anything that really looks like they're about to head south um that would be a a massive step and he knows it and i think he he can see that this is a a losing streak for putin and he's trying to in in the very little room he has for maneuver trying to carve himself out just a little bit of um wiggle room to say you know i wasn't i wasn't all, all in, lads. Uh, when this, uh, when this ends, however this does end, and if there's any uh, you know, final accountability in the ICC or wherever, I think Lukashenko is trying to just put a little bit of blue water between himself and Putin. But more on accountability a little bit later when I talk about um, a brief I had yesterday with a Western official. But I'll take a pause there. 
As you say, Dom, this isn't the only occasion we've seen parts of Russia go up in flames recently. There have been two fires at shopping centres in and around Moscow just this month. Are there any theories as to what might be going on? Yeah, well, basically, um, left of arc, it's appalling Russian infrastructure, old wiring, really dodgy practices, just not not very modern and um, accidents happening. Right of arc is there is a a very small uh, internal uh, grouping of um, of opposition to to Putin who are who are taking advantage of those of the the, the poor mechanics the poor infrastructure um, to uh, to make their make their feelings known. I mean, we we simply do not know. We can't we can't suggest it. And even if there is even if there is some underground activity destroying a. A factory, albeit making ball bearings that go into missiles, uh, you know, a factory producing that in one part of the country, an oil factory in Siberia, uh, a shopping mall somewhere else. I mean, they're not, it's not sort of strategic. These don't mean anything in and of themselves. Uh, If it is an underground movement, then I wish them every success, but I don't, I don't think it's some kind of coordinated campaign and it's not really going to without an information campaign around the sides to say, look, this is who we are and this is what why we're doing it. It's not really going to lead to great systemic change, which which is arguably, if you look back to the Second World War and look at what the, the, the SOE, SOE did, for example, the Special Operations Executive, that's what they that's what it was. It was an underground network that, as Churchill said when he set it up, quote, set Europe ablaze. I mean, what a brilliant mission statement. I mean, just clear, clearly bounded, you know, exactly what you've got to do. You're, you're un Un, uh, unbounded by resource or time or anything like that. Set Europe ablaze, brilliant. Um, but they knew what they had to do: set up this, this underground movement to uh, to then at the right at the right time illuminate that network and make life very very hard for for Germany and and all the other areas where the SOE were operating. So I mean that's the kind of model, and I'm not suggesting there's anything like that at the moment in Russia. Um, so if this if this is end, if this if this if these are not accidents, then as I say, I wish I wish the people well, but um, I don't I don't think it's going to have any great strategic effect. Interesting to hear your thoughts there, Dom. Thank you for that, Francis. Would you like to weigh in? Well, thanks, Claire, and good afternoon to our listeners around the world. There is also another hypothesis for these fires in shopping malls and oil rigs, which can still relate to the war in Ukraine, but not as directly as some of those hypotheses, which is simply that because the war has had this drastic effect on the economy and dramatically leading to higher inflation and all of those impacts that I was talking about yesterday from the analysis by Yale and by the European Parliament more recently, that there are individuals in Russia, business owners, perhaps more corrupt officials, oligarchs, who are trying to claim back insurance money. In order to do so, they are setting fire to their businesses, to the shopping malls, to the real estate, etc., in order to claim back those funds. Now, I say that's highly speculative, But it's an interesting hypothesis and one that some are positing online at the moment, albeit without much tangible evidence at the moment. But as I say, one to to, to look into and to consider, I think. Thank you for that, Francis. Moving on, do you have any updates on the diplomatic and political front you'd like to share? Yes, well, I want to start with the European Union and what has been quite an extraordinary 24 hours. It's been engulfed in a 
political scandal now for the last sort of 48 hours or so after a Greek MEP uh, who I should say has denied involvement in all of this but has been alleged to have been involved in a bribery scandal involving World Cup host Qatar and the European Parliament. She's one of four suspects that have been charged after Belgian investigators found 1.5 million euros in two homes and hidden in a suitcase and uh, there's been a vote today. MEPs have voted by 625 to one, I think, to strip this Greek MEP of her role as one of 14 vice presidents of the European Union, so pretty senior. And the parliament leader, Roberto Metsola, has spoken of the difficult days for the European democracy as a consequence of this of this scandal and this rather embarrassing headlines that we've seen today. But why does this matter to Ukraine? Why am I talking about this? Well, I think it's going to cause huge problems for the EU's pursuit of its energy independence. Qatar, of course, is one of the world's largest liquefied natural gas exporters and is currently being courted, I think it's fair to say, by the European Union and many EU countries as an attempt to shift away from uh, energy dependence on Russia. But now the danger is that as a consequence of this scandal, that there'll be many officials who won't want to get involved with Qatar, who won't want to be doing dealings with Middle Eastern countries. And that may have the unintended consequence of meaning that as the war drags on and goes on longer, that and as there may be conversations about peace deals and things, they start opening up dialogues again with uh, the Russian alternatives. So that's the real risk here, is that in an attempt to... That basically, if EU officials decide to deal with the corruption, they'll be snubbing Qatar. But if they don't, then uh, they'll be fueling a lot of anti-EU sentiment in countries like France, like Germany, where there are these sort of more pro-Russian uh, right-wing elements who... Uh, kind of attack the, the the liberal elites in in Brussels and believe much more of these kind of darker conspiracy theories about what's what's going on, um, and and not only will they fuel the anti EU sentiment, but as I say, there is this long term danger that it will lead to indirectly more of an alignment with Russia. So uh, a concerning story, I think, which is why I, I draw attention to this. Just staying in the political realm, this is closer to home for us in Britain, which is that. Families hosting Ukrainian refugees are to get a 40% increase in their monthly payments to £500 amid fears that thousands could drop out as a result of the cost of living crisis here. There are currently 25,000 households hosting refugees, but they're set to see their thank you payment increase from £350 to £500 after research suggested that up to a quarter could pull out due to the financial pressures from the current challenges going on in the economy here at the moment. Now, I'm not drawing attention to this to blow Britain's trumpet in any way, but simply to flag the fact that this is obviously a real concern for many Ukrainian charities in Britain and in Europe at the moment, that as a, co- as a consequence of the cost of living crisis, that uh, many families who've generously put up Ukrainian families will have no choice but to um, ask them to to go elsewhere to find alternative accommodation, but also just generally to draw attention to the noble work that is being done by many of our listeners, many people around Europe at the moment who volunteered space in their homes, their time in order to work with Ukrainian refugees, of which there are still hundreds of thousands, potentially even um, over a million 
in Europe who are being put up by, um, by as I say, generous citizens. And it's very easy for us when we're talking about these big stories, whether it be territorial, raw crimes, whatever, to miss some of the more positive stories. And I think that whilst, of course, it must be immensely challenging for those Ukrainian families who have moved, there are very happy stories, too, of the kind of relationships that are being forged between countries and between people and between individuals. And I just wanted to draw attention to that, to that noble work and to, 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 to say that it is still going on, you know, that we've not forgotten about, about that. Um, just a final couple of updates, if I may. Um, quite an interesting intervention from Ukraine this morning. Um, one of the brigadier generals has told a news briefing that despite the training in Belarus, which Don was talking about, the likelihood of a military operation being launched from Belarusian territory remains low. But they say that they believe that the Russian strategy has fundamentally adapted and believe it's going to be a much longer war than initially planned. So the Russian strategy has adapted accordingly. That, of course, will come to no surprise to our regular listeners that we've been saying this for some time. But it is a cooperation that they, the Ukrainian army's understanding of what the Russians are doing is now totally changing the duration of the war um, for, for one that was intended, of course, to only be a matter of days, but now could last considerably longer than the months that were initially uh, predicted when things started to go wrong for the Russians. And finally, an extraordinary uh, story which has come in today, which is apparently, and I say this is not confirmed yet, the Kremlin is poised to adopt a law that could effectively scrap punishment for any crimes committed in Russia-occupied parts of Ukraine as long as they were committed in the interest, and that's a direct quote, of Russia. So where to start on this? Uh, well, I think the, probably the most appropriate way of doing so is to reference a piece by Joe Barnes. Of course, he was on the podcast yesterday, our Brussels correspondent who was in Butcher on his Ukraine trip, which he spoke about yesterday. Fascinatingly, I recommend people who didn't have a chance to listen to do so. Um, he's written a piece where he talked about uh, Butcher again and about a Russian deserter who's described what took place there and how fellow soldiers raped women and his unit were given orders to shoot unarmed civilians during the occupation. He talks about how there were hundreds of bodies um, that he saw himself, how he described uh, seeing uh, former colleagues behave like maniacs. He claims he didn't see the murders himself, but he saw individuals running away and said that they were never jailed, that they were just fired um, and, and moved away and were essentially dismissed, but said that there was a direct command to murder in, these, in, in, in Butcher. If someone had a phone, we were allowed to shoot them, he says. There are maniacs who enjoy killing a man. Such maniacs turned up there. So you, you read this. And then you hear at the same time that Russia is saying that these kind of acts would never be prosecuted by the Russian state. I mean, just extraordinary. And this, is, of course, only underlines the fact that it's going to be dependent on um, whether it be the UN, which is very unlikely for reasons we've talked about in the past, or other bodies to eventually prosecute people who've been participating in these war crimes, not only at these lower levels, which of course seems to be ordered by officers and then slightly higher up commanders, but also the general apparatus of the Russian state itself, which as the uh, European Parliament and others have said now consistently, have been 
this isn't just war crimes that are taking place by accident by by benevolent actors in the lower ranks. This is a highly orchestrated campaign that has been enabled from on high. And it's going to be, as I say, something that is going to be, in many ways, I think, the story of this war. So, um, yes, a, a very, very concerning story and one that we'll follow in much more detail in due course, I'm sure. I, I mean, I, we talked about this this morning because I was in a, I was in a background brief yesterday evening with a Western official convention being we, we just refer to these people as as Western officials so I'm not saying not going to give any more detail about the background of the individual and as I've said before you you, you take it or leave it you, you trust me or don't when I say this this person uh, is in a is in a very senior position and knows what they are talking about um, so you know there you go uh, and the Western official was talking well on about a number a number of things which I'll come on to in, in a moment but I I asked a question. I asked about accountability and what might happen in terms of legal and in the legal and justice fronts uh, after this war, because we in Europe talk a lot about the ICC, International Criminal Court in in the Hague, um, but you know the US has a very different relationship with the ICC. Doesn't uh, does not want to be does not want to be too close to it. Um, and for various reasons, uh, historical reasons, it, it sort of holds it at, at arm's length. I think is a, is a is a reasonable um, assessment. However, the Western official was saying that actually the US is engaging with the ICC here uh, without reticence um, over over a possible solution on the, unlike say, on this accountability side uh, over the war. Um, and uh, we were told that the journalists. Um, group together were told that there are there are a couple of senators in the US that are keen to push through legislation that would allow the US to cooperate with the ICC a specific carve out to cooperate with the ICC on Ukraine somewhat in the model of what happened um, after the Balkan Wars the collapse of Yugoslavia although not exactly nothing nothing will ever be exactly the same but a specific carve out um, and partly for the reason that, that there is there is no chance of a freestanding tribunal through established through the UN because China and Russia would would veto it. Russia certainly would would veto it. China might abstain. I doubt it. But um, you know, it's not. You're not going to get it through the UN. Now, Ukraine is talking about having its own tribunal, inviting international judges and international court officials uh, to set up something after or during the war and after the war to, to hold people to account. That is possible. Very hard to do in the middle of a war. And again, such a body would have no powers to compel people to appear without a UN Security Council resolution. So this, that's just not really going to go anywhere. But the Western official was saying that there are um, lots of international lawyers looking at this problem, seeing if there is a new a new approach is possible. Uh, and the, the official said, see if there's quote a, you know, a new step in international justice, unquote. Um, the ICC, for its part, is is very keen to find such a route, determined to to move quickly on this front, not let this issue drag on for years. Um, in many ways, where well, you could argue that the the Balkan Wars. Uh, were dealt with fairly swiftly what 20, 20 years i mean in the grand scheme of things that's not not outrageous but it did take a while to get going and it, and it had a very limited effect there um so i just think it's quite interesting not only the the u.s position uh which will evolve and the the, the moves of these uh, unnamed senators to try and get some specific carve out in legislation to work with the icc but the u.s relationship with the icc and and what some sort of post-conflict accountability function might look like so it's obviously it's this is this is ongoing we will return to it um because i think it's it is very important um that that, that people are held to account for their for their actions uh, and as i say i think the the number of efforts and initiatives started 
at the moment by Ukraine, as valid as they are, um, I just don't think they're going to go anywhere. So, so I thought that was interesting last night. And then on the on the back of this news that the Kremlin is going to you know, scrap, scrap crimes committed in the interest of Russia, I mean, it, it just talk about two different models of of human justice. Then, uh, then there you go. This, this, the last, well, the last twelve hours really sort of says it says it all, um, and definitely one for us to keep returning to. Yeah, really interesting stuff. Thank you for that, Dom. Um, we are doing a slightly shorter episode this afternoon. I'll explain uh, why at the end of the episode. So I will come to you both for your final thoughts now. So if I could start with you, Francis. Thanks, Claire. Well, just on this theme of war crimes, I just wanted to flag a tweet by President Zelensky this morning, who's commended the European Parliament for the recognition of the Holodomor as a genocide of the Ukrainian people. He said he's grateful to the European Parliament's president, the MEPs and all of United Europe in this fair and important decision. That's an imp- a direct quote. I hope for further recognition of the Holodomor as genocide by all civilised countries of the world. Now, this obviously comes off the back of Germany uh, also recognising this, if it wasn't last week, the week before last. And it's the reason this matters is because given that this was an event that happened in the 1930s, is that, of course, it's meant to be raising awareness on the political stage of the crimes that Russians have committed in Ukraine for a long time. And also underlining this point that we've spoken about today, that the war crimes of, of, to, of that are happening right now in Ukraine will not be forgotten, that there is increased scrutiny in this vital field in a way that perhaps there hasn't been and hasn't needed to have been for many, many decades. So this is going to be an ongoing saga and one that I think will be the story of this war when this war eventually ends, is how such heinous acts that we've talked about, not just in Bucha, not just the executions of innocent people and civilians, but the kind of um, mass deportations that I've spoken about in the past of children of families. I really firmly believe that this will be something that will be being talked about perhaps for as long, if not longer, than the very, uh, than, than the territorial, territorial discussions um, and, and how the war concludes in that space. Because I think for many, many people, when they know the full details of this, which we don't yet know, I think they'll find unconscionable that it was capable of taking place in the 20th century, 21st century. Um, it's, it is just extraordinary to me. So uh, I, I mention this again because uh, I think President Zelensky is absolutely right to continue to draw attention to the crimes of, of the past and very much of the present. Yeah, I'll just finish with just a little nod back to what we were talking about yesterday with the the expected announcement that the US is going to give Patriot anti-air missile to anti-air missiles to to Ukraine, thought to be only one one battery of eight vehicles, each with four missiles or capable of firing four missiles. So a small amount, but a very very capable weapon system that can can not only um, be not only take down aircraft but also ballistic missiles. That's that's the biggie here. Patriot can take down the the, the big ballistic missiles that that will be fired at, that are being fired at, at Ukraine. And we were asking the question. Or I asked the question: Is this this is a very a very um, capable weapon platform is this a way of of the u.s just pushing up the heat a little bit sending a message to russia but without s- stepping over any perceived escalatory lines and um so that's what we were talking about yesterday in the discussion last night with the western official the official was saying that the discussions around at that at that level is that just grinding on in the war is quote not attractive and questions are being asked how to support ukraine better to give them a decisive edge without escalation and i just wondered if if what we're seeing there 
is is the is the is the trajectory of um of the of the support here whether or not things that some months ago midgate for example remember it was just unconscionable that some very very niche capabilities would be gifted to ukraine now that doesn't seem to be the case the, the patriots is a, is a biggie and there's not been a not been a, a full-throated pushback from russia on that um probably because they can't there's not there's nothing they can do nothing they can say really they they can't really escalate much further sub sub nuclear um and i'm i'm not i'm not um i'm not trying to belittle that but you know that's a conversation we've had before and we'll have again but i just thought it very interesting about if, if these discussions around this really thorny issue about how to how to how to push ukraine through this or support them through this conflict and 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 increase the capabilities that are given their military capabilities without crossing any kind of line of escalation. And of course, this will all change. These dynamics will change every day as as Russia sees territory and then Ukraine will have to cede some territory, as in you know, the battlefield reversals. It's going to happen. Um, so I thought that, that these discussions, we I would have been very disappointed if these discussions hadn't been happening at a very senior level. Um, to hear that they are is, is good. Um, to hear that there's no clear answer is unsurprising or maybe they, they didn't want to tell a journalist that there's a clear answer but i thought on the back of yesterday when the when it was announced that in all likelihood because yet to be confirmed in all likelihood the us will give patriots to to ukraine maybe this is one way of just keeping just dialing up the pressure all the time against russia along with the economics and the diplomatic front sanctions and so on and so forth but i thought that was um i thought those two things happening in the same day i thought were, were just were just noteworthy and um we should uh, we should keep an eye out and see if, if actually it is going to come back to kit if that's the if that's the, if that's the way that you escalate this gently but by but using kit to send messages as well as uh, physical support for ukraine we're dedicating the second half of today's episode to an interview with dr thomas clausen a historian and commentator from a liberal think tank in berlin francis dernley caught up with him earlier this week Thomas, thank you very much for coming back on to Ukraine The Latest. It's great to have you with us again. Olaf Scholz, Germany's Chancellor, has had, I think it's fair to say, a busy couple of weeks. He's been fending off a rather bonkers extremist plot to overthrow the Republic and install an obscure aristocrat as king. We'll get to that. Um, And also authored a 5,000 word essay for the prestigious American magazine Foreign Affairs. I imagine he's looking forward to the festive break. I know I am. But we'll come to the plot in a few minutes, starting with the essay. What does he mean when he talks about Zeitwender? And what's the essence of his argument in this extraordinary piece? So a week ago, Scholz published an op-ed for foreign affairs in which he clarified his stance on the implication of the Zeitenwende. And this is, of course, the term which he used in his speech on the 27th of February, in which refers to an epochal tectonic shift. His choice of medium already shows that he is concerned about how Germany is viewed in foreign policy circles, in particular within the United States and Europe, And it also shows that this is a very polished article. So you can see that he probably had some help from either a very competent communications agency or some stellar policy advisor in his office. Um, And it's, it's very polished. It tries to present a charitable reading of Germany's foreign policy before and after Russia's attack on Ukraine. And in one of the earlier episodes, for example, we talked about how one German position was to say, well, during the Cold War, we got some gas from the Soviet Union 
one of the rewards for our Ostpolitik was German reunification. And we really couldn't have expected that things would turn sour. And this is a line that is echoing in the, in the article. And, but at the same time, it's not really an article about Ukraine. And the subtitle already reads, How to avoid a new Cold War in a multipolar era. And in many ways, it can almost be read as an attempt to limit the impact of the Zeitenwende speech and to salvage the remnants of the international rules-based order. But first of all, Scholz is definitely keen to assuage concerns amongst his Western allies. He says that, and I quote, Germans are intent on becoming the guarantor of European security that our allies expect us to be, which means, in his words again, Russia's revanchist imperialism must be stopped. The crucial role for Germany at this moment is to step up as one of the main providers of security in Europe by investing in our military, strengthening the European defense industry, beefing up military presence on NATO's eastern flank, and training and equipping Ukraine's armed forces, end quote. So, and in this context, he highlights the value of the transatlantic partnership. He mentions, for example, the $100 billion pledged to the federal armed forces in spring, and he even speaks of a new mindset in German society. And again, when it comes to NATO and Russia, Scholz is also very clear. He reaffirms unequivocally Germany's commitment to Article 5. He emphasizes that even threatening the use of nuclear weapons uh, crosses a red line. And he vows that, and I quote for the last time, not a single sanction will be lifted should Russia try to dictate the terms of a peace deal. So as you say, this is an essay with a lot of ramifications beyond Ukraine. But in the Ukraine context, what what does it mean? Why, why publish it now? How do you think this will be interpreted by those who are following what's going on in Ukraine at the moment? I think it's mainly an essay written with regard to some of the more critical voices within the alliance, especially in the US and in the United Kingdom. I don't think that Ukraine in this context is the main audience, but he is quite lucid in some regard regarding Ukraine. So he says, for example, in my exchanges with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, I have made one thing very clear, and that is that Germany will sustain its efforts to support Ukraine for as long as necessary. So this is not that far away from what, for example, Rishi Sunak is saying. But a big worry in the past couple of weeks, not only because of Scholz, but also, for example, because of what Macron said and how it was being perceived, is the question of negotiations. And here, Scholz tries to be quite clear as well. Um, he says, in coordination with our partners, Germany stands ready to reach arrangements to sustain Ukraine's security as part of a potential post-war peace settlement. And he goes further and says, Germany will not accept the illegal annexation of Ukrainian territory, poorly disguised by sham referendums. To end this war, Russia must withdraw its troops. Although, of course, there's some sort of, he doesn't specify whether that means Crimea as well uh, or just uh, whether it also means Donetsk and Luhansk or only the territory that was annexed recently and after the 24th of February. I would, I would read it as saying, well, for the moment, all of Ukraine has to be freed, but it's, um, he doesn't specify it. Just looking at some of the broader ramifications of this, I'm very struck reading some extracts from it. He describes how this is an epochal tectonic shift following Putin's invasion of Ukraine. He talks about the challenge of how EU states can remain independent actors in this increasingly complex multipolar world and, and how 
you know, with the rise of China and Russia, he doesn't want to succumb to this fatalistic view that the world is doomed once again to separate into competing blocks. And it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that he's saying the way to do this is to not isolate Beijing or Moscow, but to encourage a kind of cooperation, particularly with regard to the former. And he even says explicitly that he wants to demand a level playing field for the Europeans and the Chinese. I mean, this seems pretty radical stuff on the one hand, but yet perhaps not so radical on the other. Or am I am I interpreting this correctly? I think one could say that. And it's clear that Scholz has be- is slightly afraid that Zeitenwende now not only refers to Russia. And it's very clear that, of course, the attack on Ukraine is a, a massive break in the sort of trajectory of recent European history. But he's probably afraid that it will now also mean that we treat China the way as we treat Russia now. And here I would say this is really quite a caveat. But maybe let's go back a bit to Ukraine, because I think the first problem with this article is the question of the actual commitments. But then, of course, the approach to China and other authoritarian states is a worry as well. And then I'm also not quite sure about his timeline. But let's go back to the to the concrete commitments because I also think this is quite it's quite important to keep tracking what what Germany and other countries are actually doing in favor of Ukraine. I think it's it's good to go back to the Ukraine support tracker of the Institute for the World Economy, which is based at the at Kiel, and it's, it's it remains a stellar source. And here Germany at, at first glance isn't looking too bad in terms of military aid. We have now committed a total of 2.3 billion euros in weapons and equipment. And if one excludes financial aid with military purpose for future purchases, it's now even supersedes the UK, at least according to that statistic. And at the last meeting, we also discussed some of the highly useful weaponry that Germany has delivered, including the Gepards or the Iris-T SLM air defense system. And then on the side note, and that's this is also sort of on the more cultural and symbolic side of the support, on the 1st of December, the German parliament also recognized the Holodomor, so the famine in Ukraine instigated by Stalin during the 1930s as a genocide. And I'm always a bit critical of memory loss as a historian, but at least it shows that also in the realm of cultural politics, Germany is willing to take Ukraine's side. But... Of course, there's a caveat, and I've been quite critical in the past, and I still think there's a reason to be critical. First of all, if we take into account GDP, Germany's support is still much lower than the support of the Baltics and of Poland, for example. Um, Of course, one can now also consider the new EU support package of 18 billion euros, and that means that Germany is now the biggest supporter of Ukraine, second only to to the U.S., So their support now totals 12.6 billion euros. That's not too bad, but given Ukraine's predicament and the situation that they are facing and this genocidal war of aggression, it's still far too little, I would say, when it comes to sort of the nitty-gritty. So one of the things, for example, that Scholz is doing in the essay as well, he's talking about the delivery of specific weapons, in particular modern tanks. And here, Germany's position is still quite curious in a way. So Germany is sending modern tanks to the Czech Republic, to Greece, Slovakia and Slovenia. And in turn, those countries will give the number of Soviet-era tanks to Ukraine. And in his article, Scholz defends this so-called ring exchange by saying in a rather patronizing way that, quote, 
Ukraine is receiving tanks that Ukrainian forces know well and have experience using and that can be easily integrated into Ukraine's existing logistics and maintenance schemes. So somehow he's still keeping one foot on the brake and so far Ukrainian's armed forces have demonstrated in a really admirable, uh, admirable uh, way that they can really use all types of equipment, including the most uh, modern ones. And I don't quite see why, why Germany is still sort of keeping this foot on the brake here. And then, of course, there's this issue of the 2% of GDP for defense spending that Germany has pledged a long time ago for NATO. And here it isn't looking too good. So partially this reflects the fact that the annual federal budget is separate from this 100 billion euro special investment pool. But it's also it's, some allies are sort of questioning whether how serious Germany is about this commitment. And one could, of course, argue that given the usage of funds in the past, it wouldn't be too good to put too much money into the federal armed forces now without proper consideration of the way money is being spent. But it's still quite a bad look. But now we should go back to China, probably. So let's get back to China then. A very interesting section of the essay on this What's your take on why Olaf Scholz seemed to be so keen to reach out to China in particular? You and I have spoken in the in the past about his work in relation to China and the port in Hamburg. Perhaps you can relay or remind listeners about that and look at this piece in that context. Well, famously, last month, Scholz travelled to China. He wrote another article in a German newspaper that echoed some of the sentiments in this new one on foreign affairs. And in fact, one line is almost the same. So in November, he wrote in the FAZ, one of Germany's leading newspapers, Germany in particular, which experienced the division during the Cold War in a particularly painful way, has no interest in a new block formation in the world. And now he writes in Foreign Affairs, and I quote again, our experience of being split in half during an ideological and geopolitical contest gives us a particular appreciation of the risks of a new Cold War. So when he talks about the menace of a new Cold War, he talks not primarily about Russia, but about China. And to be sure, he also said that he raised concerns over the growing insecurity in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait and questions China's approach to human rights and individual freedoms. But it is also very clear that he believes that Seitenwende doesn't really mean we are necessarily heading for a confrontation with China. And here I would personally be quite critical of Scholz because even the subtitle, How to Avoid a New Cold War, somehow implies that it is his choice. But we've already seen with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it's not the Western democracies that choose to enter a new Cold War or not, but a regime such as Russia. And in the case with China, similarly, of course, no one in the West wants a war over Taiwan, but it's, it's not the West that's going to make the decision. It's going to be China. And I think there'll be many listeners hearing to what you've just said and thinking, if one looks back at the history of the 20th century and, of course, in recent German foreign policy, we've seen soft lines towards one autocracy, obviously most recently Russia, building business and energy ties and it not ending well. Yet Schultz seems to be declaring a radical foreign policy shift that does really more of the same towards China, in essence, a sort of détente policy. Is that fair? I would say it is fair. Of course, we don't know how uh, history will unfold. It was a risk, sort of, uh, assuaging Putin. Was a, not only Germany made mistakes, but of course also other NATO partners as well. There was the famous reset under Obama that also went nowhere. But in light of the recent events, I think one should also keep in mind the um, 
announcement of Russia and China at the beginning of February. And in, in a way, I think, with hindsight, um, and of course historians will discuss this maybe differently, but I would say that maybe it's not the 24th of, Oct uh, of February that's really the, the, that marks the dawn of the new era, but this public proclamation of Russia and China that they want to question American hegemony. And in this light, and this is something that Scholz completely omits, one, one could probably say that it's naive to assume that China will be willingly listen to Olaf Scholz' how-to guide, and they might uh, actually want to head for a confrontation. At least the idea of a multipolar world is not quite that innocent. This is, of course, a term that is used to question an alleged uh, American hegemony, uh, which... Um, one could argue, just a sort of derogatory term for the rules-based order. Well, that seems like a good moment to ask you about another story that I saw and was keen to ask your opinion on, which is that Angela Merkel has given quite another interesting interview reflecting on her time as Chancellor. Yes, of course. Um, so um, this was quite a large interview in the Zeit, one of Germany's major weekly newspapers. And in this interview, she now, this is... One year after uh, she stepped down as chancellor, she reflects on the refugee crisis, on her East German past, and of course on Ukraine and Russia. Um, but one theme of the interview, in, in a way, is a certain satisfaction almost with her choices. So pressed on whether she would have acted differently at any point in 2015, so during the hate of the refugee crisis, she says no. And then she uh, only goes on to say, well, maybe we should have increased payments to the World Food Programme to avoid the crisis. But the, the main decisions uh, aren't questioned. And now regarding Ukraine, the interviewers of the site ask, um, and I translate, um, but you can still find it plausible how you acted in earlier circumstances and still considered wrong today in view of the results. So they sort of want to give a way to, to admit some mistakes. And she gives a rather surprising answer. She said... She says, and I translate again, but that presupposes also saying what exactly the alternatives were at the time. I considered the initiation of NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia, which was discussed in 2008, to be wrong. Neither country, country uh, Merkel says, had the necessary prerequisites for this, nor had we thought uh, through to the end what the consequences of such a decision would have been, both in terms of Russia's actions against Georgia and Ukraine and in terms of NATO and its rules of engagement. And the 2014 Minsk agreement was an attempt to give Ukraine time. And this is a quote that has been picked up not only by, by the Western press, but also by, by Russia, of course, because it sort of implies that Minsk was never meant seriously and only sort of a means to, to give Ukraine time to rearm and to sort of get control of the military situation, which was looking very dire at the time. Um, and Merkel sort of tries to insinuate that this is what, what the goal of Minsk was. Ukraine has used the time to become stronger, as can be seen today, she says. And Ukraine of 2014-15 is not the Ukraine of today. And in early 2015, Putin could have easily overrun them. I doubt very much that NATO would have helped at the time, as they are now. But here, and this is very much what, what Merkel said in this interview, in their first interview after like a few months ago. Munich, based on what you're saying, a, a sort of reassessment of what people didn't necessarily see at the time, but which later generations saw what clear foreign policy mistakes. Well, the, the elephant in the room, I would say, much rather, is that, for example, when it comes to Germany's energy dependence, nothing makes sense. You can't go and say, well, we want to 
to give Ukraine time for like their next confrontation with Russia and then get more dependent on Russian energy. And here she says, and, and, and the journalists at the side also press her on this, and she says, well, wouldn't it have been possible to take a, a different decisions because of sort of cross-party decision-making processes that would have been the German economy would have been much less competitive. And then she says, uh, should you have taken this decision anyway? Um, no, especially since there would n uh, not have been an acceptance for a different uh, decision. So if you ask me to be... You, you have to look for a different example. But she's not, even now, she's not saying basically that she made a mistake when it comes to energy dependence. And that's quite quite striking. She admits some shadow of a doubt by saying we should have reacted more quickly to Russia's aggressiveness. Um, she reflects on Germany not reaching the 2% target. But then she also deflects on her coalition partner and the SPD. But um, there's no sign that Merkel really is willing to admit defeat or at least admit, admit mistakes. Well, just before we turn to talking about the general mood in Germany now that winter has finally come, I've got to ask you about this extremist plot involving an obscure German aristocrat. What's the story and how significant is it uh, in telling us about Germany at the moment? Well, um, maybe to give some background for your listeners who haven't followed this particular plot on the 7th of December, The German police allegedly foiled a terrorist plot or even a coup d'etat. Over 3,000 police and special forces were involved. Uh, they made 25 arrests. Most notably, they focus on Henry XIII, Prince of Reuss, a Thuringian aristocrat, and Birgit Malzak-Winkemann, a former uh, member of parliament for the right-wing alternative for Germany. And the group also included some members of the security apparatus, It involved a former lieutenant colonel of the Commando Spezialkräfte, the KSK. So there seemed to have been uh, weapons already acquired and some planning via channels such as Telegram. But so far, it's not quite clear how concrete their plans were. Um, it, was, it, it, it has been alleged that they wanted to take hostages in the German parliament. Um, and so far, it really looks uh, like a farce. But then again, the story is, of course, reminiscent of the Hitler-Ludendorff coup of 1923, which also uh, was a farce, and uh, we all know how it ended 10 years later. Um, in ideological terms, uh, there seems to have been a melange of right-wing nationalism and imperial nostalgia, but also an overlap with the anti-vax movement, QAnon, etc., uh, apparently, they also tried to make contact with the Russian consulate and Roy's partner allegedly is Russian. Um, and the the key building block of their ideology is the so-called Reichsbürgertum. So they consider themselves to be imperial citizens. They reject uh, the Federal Republic. They say it's not a proper state. Maybe it's just a, a business corporation set up by the Americans or whoever and then they proclaim to be citizens of some sort of variation of the German Kaiserreich or whatever. Again, it, it probably doesn't tell us too much about Germany now, So, it, but I think it's, it highlights that there is a huge, like that there is a substantial um, body of conspiracy myths and sort of all sorts of um, yeah, ideological building blocks, probably also anti-Semitism, etc., And in a time of crisis, it could look very diff different. So as long as everything is going fairly well, and even though we are, of course, in a time of crisis, we, we are facing economic troubles, we have 
electricity and gas prices. We have uh, the war in Ukraine. But as it stands now, it's still okay. If we, if we are thinking of, well, maybe climate change hits, maybe there's another refugee crisis, maybe we face huge economic troubles, then this could be a sort of a, um, a source for uh, opposition. And that could potentially be quite dangerous. So it's definitely something to 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 keep a watch to keep an eye on but it's not a sign of uh, an immediate coup d'etat attempt in germany that will uh, oust olaf Scholz. and i would add a stock market crash to that list as well um just one last question then thomas as i say how is the general mood in germany at the moment with regards to ukraine has it changed since we last spoke What's your take on the German resolve on the matter of Ukraine as we now properly arrive into winter? I know it's snowy in Berlin at the moment, just as it is in London. And of course, we know it is in Ukraine as well. So what's your feeling on on this crucial moment from a German perspective? Well, we have some uh, opinion polls, for example, the Deutschland trend by by the uh, Infratest DMAP, and they... Well, in some regards, there's little change. So when it comes to support of Ukraine with weapons, then there's still 60% who say, well, it's, it isn't going far enough, or at least it's, it's enough. And only 30% say it's, um, it's, it's too much. But when it comes to diplomacy, I think we see some sort of, we see some troubling signs. So um, we still have 50, um, we, we have 55% of Germans, according to this poll, who say, there aren't enough diplomatic efforts to end this war. And it's not just the, the sort of this opinion poll, but also some key um, actors uh, in, German, uh, in Germany who are sort of saying, well, we shouldn't undervalue diplomacy, most notably the head of the uh, Protestant church. And here I was quite struck um, that there's a huge contrast here in Germany with, for example, the Anglican church, where uh, it's... it's they, I mean, uh, Justin Welby has been in, in Ukraine and he was saying, of course, we have to keep supporting Ukraine. It's, it's an evil war. We have to be resilient. And in Germany, there's some sort of weird idea that um, this is a conflict that needs to be that, that it just needs more diplomatic efforts. And there's almost no reflection on the fact that it's Putin who doesn't want diplomacy. Maybe he wants a sort of armistice, but only to continue his assault much later. There's absolutely no sign that he steps away from his goal to, to annex the territories, to oust Zelensky, and also in terms of what he's doing in practice, the uh, bombarding of civil infrastructure, the deliberate um, killing of civilians, the, the use of cold and uh, freezing to, uh, to essentially... Uh, yeah, intimidate and kill the population. That's something that, uh, weirdly enough, isn't really spoken about enough in the German public opinion. And we talked about this briefly before uh, the, this podcast. There's also a difference in terms of who is invited, for example, to talk shows and who is seen as a respectable conversation partner. And now I'm all in favor of uh, free speech. And of course, uh, Cranky Mac Crackpot should be able to say that um, Putin has just been... Uh, intimidated by NATO Eastern expansion and nonsense like that. But when it comes to sort of um, key actors who are sort of responsible for what mainstream people consider common sense, so the churches, the um, mainstream politician, professors, I would uh, expect some sort of uh, consensus on 
what is going on. Uh, of course, debate, but um, one of the professors who's been invited to um, German talk shows, uh, Ulrike Gero, has published a bestseller in Germany, and she uh, picks up the biolab thesis so that apparently the West is probably or maybe uh, developing genetic weapons against Russia, and they are using um, eastern Ukraine as a territory to test those weapons because there's a Slavic genetic phenotype or something like that in, uh, in eastern Ukraine. And that's absolute madness. And I don't think there's enough of a sort of firewall against the sort of nonsense that's being peddled in German mainstream media. Well, Thomas, it's always a pleasure having you on Ukraine The Latest. Danke schön and have a good Christmas. And we look forward to speaking to you in January. Thank you very much again for having me. Goodbye. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Jaden Irving. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.